Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Today, it's great to chat with Jesse Single on the podcast. Jesse is a contributing writer at New York Magazine and the former editor of the magazine Science of Us Online Vertical, as well as the co-host of the podcast Blocked and Reported. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Slate, The Boston Globe, The Daily Beast, and other publications. He was a Bosch Fellow in Berlin and holds a master's degree from Princeton University's School of Public and International Affairs. His book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills, has just been published. Jesse, wow, man, I just have so much I want to discuss with you today. Um, I read the book and feel like you condemned my whole field. So I can't wait to chat. I can't wait to chat. I was going to say, like, I feel you're a very good guy and a very fair guy, but I I definitely criticized uh, some of your people. So I'm happy to get into it. Like some of my like dearest friends, yeah. <laughs> not not just some of my people, <laughs> like you know, like. But anyway, it's all good. Um, all in the spirit of openness and making the field of psychology better, which I'm all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to kind of uh go back to the kind of origin story of this. You were at yeah. Science of Us. Um, it's around 2015, like around September 2015, or even before that. You're getting lots of press releases. Um, and you're kind of just taking them all at face value. Like, so you're getting inboxes, uh, emails in your inbox. You're like, wow, here's the latest new press release. Uh, or here's the latest new study that's, it's, you know, we found it's, this is better than sliced bread, you know, <laughs> what yeah, we yeah. found. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. And then, you know, so, so give me like the pre Jesse and the post Jesse. So the pre Jesse would look at those kind of emails and be like, wow, I got to write about it. Cause obviously they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Is that right? I- well, I think it was a little bit, I do think I like noticed something was afoot and we did a pretty good job at like resisting that sort of thing. Like um, there was this famous study about hurricanes versus hemicanes where the, the theory was uh, due to some social priming effect, hurricanes with female names, people didn't take as seriously uh, and wouldn't flee from. So more of them died. And this ended up being widely mocked. And we actually, uh, my colleague, Melissa Dahl wrote a good article explaining why this likely wasn't true. But I was not skeptical enough, and I felt like I was not actively 
debunking it. And, you know, around then, a, a lot of science outlets were very excited about social psychology and I think didn't maybe apply enough um, critical thought to the pa- claims that would pass along. And, and as you said, that problem of like writing directly off of a press release is, is pretty bad because like a lot of science journalists um, don't don't read the actual studies and the press releases often misrepresent them. For sure. But when did you kind of catch on to that? Like It was around September 2015, I believe. And um, the I, I feel like the IIT, the IIT came on your radar and then you're like, wait a minute, uh, this, there might be something to what this person is telling me about to look deeper into the IIT. Yeah, I received an email um, from a guy with some training in psych who basically said, like, there's a story here. The IIT isn't as good as people say it is. That was when something really flipped in my head because the IIT, I think I had more or less taken at face value. And I... Mm. I wrote a headline for, I think, a slightly viral uh, study write-up about how white people think black people are magical. Uh, and that was based on some IAT result where they, they, I forget what it was, but they associated black people with magical words quicker. And I bet if I could go back now and look deeply into the methodology, I would, um, I would not have written that study up in that way. But yeah, you know, I, I went from, <laughs> I went from, but who could resist that headline? White people think oh, black abso- people are magical. Oh, absolutely. But it's almost interesting to just think like, what if you wrote the headline today? Like that much has changed in four, in five years that I feel like it would just have a whole different just yeah. reception, reception to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, once I think with the IAT, the fact that it was hosted by Harvard and, and mm. Mazarin Banaji is a really well-respected Harvard social psychologist. I started thinking like, if if a test with such big names behind it and such institutions behind it is whatever else you think about it, and, and there's real debate over how useful it is, I'm not saying it's useless, but at the very least, I, I think their most impressive early claims have not been borne out. And if everyone can believe in a test like that, what else am I missing? What other ideas am I passing on to readers without fully vetting them? Am I part of the problem? And I think that, you know, that led me down a path toward a little bit more of a debunky role. Well, it's really responsible of you. Um, I remember, and I remember those articles that you wrote. I, I, I remember that Jesse, like vividly. <laughs> okay, Jesse. Like I, I remember the Jesse from from yeah, um, uh, from that column, the Science of Us column. Jesse from the Science of Us. Like there I remember that that incarnation of you. You know yeah. what I mean? Jesse um, from the block. And, and uh, yeah, and that's when you first came on my radar, and uh, and I and I was impressed. I mean, I was you know I was like, wow, he's 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 not doing what every other journalist, you know, science journalist, is doing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that was cool. Um, so you use this phrase fad psychology in your book. And I was wondering, like, what, like, can you define that? What is fad psychology? I want to make sure that I'm not doing fad psychology in my research. Yeah, I think we use it more in the title um, than the book. But uh, but it's basically, I've noticed this pattern where a new idea will burst onto the scene via a TED Talk or a book or some combination of them. It will suddenly attract a lot of media attention, often a lot of research funding, a lot of interest within psychology. And then a few years later, when we have more data, it turns out that maybe there wasn't that much there in the first place. There wasn't that much to be excited about. Power posing, I think, is one of the cleaner examples of this because I think there's like a little bit of a there there, a little bit something where maybe it can improve people's, um, you know, felt sense of power, but nowhere near the claims that were accompanied the original TED Talk. So to me, that's a fad. It's like everyone chasing the shiny new idea without really looking deeply into the strength of the evidence, at least at first. Yeah. You know, reading your whole book, and I, which, I, which I read in all in one pass, because it, it kind of reads like a novel. Like, I, I recommend people, if they, have, if they have like the two, three hours, I think you can, actually, you can actually read your whole book, you know, 
perhaps um, you know, uh, it, 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 and just reading it, I, I was left with like, you know, like, wow, there, there's a real deep truth here um, that there, a thread that runs through all of this, which is that if you're that, that certain people throughout history and, and also in our generation who say certain make certain claims, um, they're going to be more popular than other claims. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, regardless whether you're a psychologist, regardless of whether you're a Tony Robbins kind of figure, um, if you make some claims that that suggest that wow we're capable of so much more, you know that um uh, that uh, um that there are characteristics that yes maybe your environment sucks but there are things that you can change and um and not just change a little bit but change dramatically. Yeah. Um, there are things you can change. Um, you know people are craving. To hear that, especially those who lack hope, I I did a now statistical analysis, and I, I've been planning on writing about this. Who like who who reads self help? Like I did a statistical analysis of the personality traits that are correlated with. Oh, interesting! Isn't that cool? Isn't that, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to write this up. But I found that like it's people with like mostly like really low self esteem, you know. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, that's the population. You, you find your target population. You find people with low self esteem. You say, hey, person with low self esteem. You got, you can do it. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to give you so much. I'm going to give you the, the panacea, you know, um, and they'll be like, oh, I'm listening. I'm listening. Go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, do, right. I mean, yeah. And, and I think that's, yeah. I, I mean, I'm talking a little bit about the history, but there's something particularly American about that, where there's always yeah. something in our cultural waters about if you can just change your mindset, it'll transform your life. Uh, and sometimes, yeah. you know, with like, the secret, this Rhonda Byron idea that, that Oprah helped promote it, it, it gets very literal. Like if you can literally think about a possibility, including a new car, it'll manifest itself. Um, so yeah, I mean, the book, the book is partly a critique of that, but part of the reason I, I, I'm excited to be on this podcast is I, I think you do have some hope that, that there is some room yeah. people have to improve themselves, as do I. The book is more about critiquing overclaimed uh, claims in that regard but but i you know i don't want to yeah. throw the baby out with the bathwater me neither and i mean i look i uh, my whole research career has been um wanting to give people uh hope uh in the sense showing them they have they do have greater potential than they probably realize through i mean i developed all these self-actualization tests and everything um, I mean, you went very easy on me. You didn't mention me at all in your book. I was like, Phew. I was like, oh, because you know, you turn the page. You know, all the psychologists are reading your book, turning the page, and be like, what, is he is he going to hit? Right, is he right, is right. he going to write about me? <laughs> but um, I'm being cheeky. But you know, we're friends, so I can I can be that way with you. But um, well, but, but I also but, but, I don't I don't really get yeah. the sense that you commit. I don't want to call them sins. No one's getting murdered here. But I I don't I don't right. know. I don't view you as an overclaimer. I view you as someone trying to yeah. study this stuff in a pretty responsible way. Thank you. Well, that that means we a lot. We just made that, this a total love a fest. You're you're incredible, Scott. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much, Jesse. No, that means a lot to me. I really, I try really, really hard to like do it right. You know what I mean? I try hard, yeah. and uh, and um, uh, and you know, like I'm interested in um in using rigorous science to see what we are capable of changing, and to see what um you know what we could be as a species and as as a human. So when you said, you know, you don't want to throw out the baby of the bathroom, I'm glad you said that, you know, because neither do I. Um, I definitely want to address um, weak science. But but I, are we both on aligned in saying that one can apply a rigorous scientific approach to eval to val to evaluating programs and things and and may and we could find that some of these programs do have large effects. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're certainly not saying um 
you know, no, no scientist is allowed to find a large effect for an intervention. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> um, you know, I think mindset interventions are actually a good concrete example to focus on here because, mm. uh, and, uh, I, you know, I, when I go on just sort of a normal layperson podcast, I would, I would explain what those are. Do you think your listeners more or less know what mindset interventions are? I could give the quick elevator give, pitch. Give, give the quick, give the quick. Yeah. yeah. The, the idea of a mindset intervention is people tend to have either uh, fixed or growth mindsets. A fixed mindset is, this is how strong I am. This is how smart I am. I, that limits me. I'm not, I can't improve. So the idea of a, a mindset intervention, especially with kids, is to change their sense of their intelligence and their academic potential mm. from fixed to growth. So you go from, I failed that test. I'm, I'm an idiot. I'll never be smart to... Well, if I work harder, I can do better on the text the next time, the test the next time. And um, uh, Carol Dweck is is sort of the main uh, evangelist behind these ideas, and, and she was criticized, I think, rightly for for overhyping them a little bit. I, I think she made really big claims about the utility of this intervention, and I think to a lot of debunky science people, it was it was teetering on the brink of full debunking. Then there was a very big, rigorous study in I want to say Nature. Uh, that, that, you know, it had all the components of a genuine program evaluation and what it found was not huge effect sizes, but for the most academically vulnerable kids, this seems to work. It seems to nudge them a bit closer to staying on track for graduation. And it points to like a very specific cost-effective setting, which is, you know, I I don't know exactly how they implement this, but let's say halfway through the academic year, you take the bottom 20% of the class and you give them this intervention and it takes like an hour. So I think at the end of the day, with a lot of these ideas, we might eventually end up somewhere where there's a cost-effective intervention, but the bigger claims that you know everyone should do this or there's really big effect sizes, that's where I'm more skeptical until there's data. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I do have some responses to that. First of all, um, David Yeager is a colleague of, um, uh, of Dweck's, and he's been... I mean, he's been writing papers arguing there. I think he even wrote an article called there is no magic, you know, there's no magical intervention. Yeah. Um, so he's been, you know, to his credit, he's been trying to uh, make clear that um, there are, there are cost effective, uh, cheap interventions that can move the, the dial in an education setting a little bit, but they're not magic. Yeah. Um, also, um, yeah, I had Carol Dweck on my podcast and it was one of the rare podcasts that she agreed to be on. And we, and I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't hold back anything. I, I gave her every single possible criticism and went through all the papers. I highly recommend you and the listeners listen to, as you know, as a follow-up to this, listen to yeah. my discussion with Carol Dweck. Um, I find, I found her to be incredibly gracious, um, humble, um, um, but there, there's just was one moment where I would say my own, only point of contention. There was one moment where you know we we literally went through all of the um, the findings. She agreed. You know, she's like, yeah, you're right. Like in that instance, yeah, it was a really small effect size. That's why we're looking at specific populations. You know, she finds that those with a low SES and those with few opportunities might benefit more from yeah. these interventions versus others. But there was one point I said, so do you still stand by the statement? And I read the sent the statement saying something along the lines that like. Um, it's, uh, that, the, that mindset is kind of like a revolutionary or like completely transformative. I said, you still stand by that. And there was this moment in the interview, she says, she thinks about it. And I mean, we had just gone through all the small effects. I think she's like, yeah, I still stand by it, Scott. Yeah. And it was a fascinating, um, because I consider myself friends with her. Do you know what I mean? Like I, these, yeah. these, these aren't, these things aren't personal, you know, like no. I, if she's listening, she probably will listen to this podcast. I, I want to say, you know, like I, I admire her and I think she does great 
research. Um, but that was an interesting moment because I just don't know if I would have, like, I think that like, if I had just like gone through all that same data, I think I, maybe I would have been like, yeah, I think I maybe have overhyped it a little bit. I think maybe I would say that, you know? I had a very yeah. similar, in my chapter on grit, I had a similar thing with Angela Duckworth, who is, I'm not friends with her. I've never met her in person, but she was like gracious enough to answer my emails. And yeah. she's been pretty good about not overhyping grit and slowing down the grit train. <clears throat> yeah, me. I agree. But when I asked her about her her most famous quote, which is about grit beating the pants off of traditional measures, like, you know, intelligence. Yeah. She wouldn't really back off from it. And I, I don't I don't think that's justified. I just you know, there's something we're humans. Mm. And once we say something and put it out on the public record, it's probably hard to sort of in effect retract it. But um yeah, yeah I you know, I would say the researchers in my book run the gamut in terms of how responsible they've been, and not everyone who who accidentally ignites a viral half-baked idea is malicious or did so malevolently there there are errors there are incentives but i think where i hope my book will move the needle is once your idea is out there and perhaps getting more attention and acclaim than it deserves what do you do at that point do do you rein it back in or do you just keep doubling and tripling down and and i hope more researchers make the right decision on that front yeah it it you 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 made a really good point like scientists are humans too yeah and you know we're uh it, it's not a very, um, you know, on the whole, science is is not as is not a very glamorous field. That's the word I'm trying to look for. Not like um, podcasting. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> podcasting. That's right. That's that's you know that that's why I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just, I'm going to the podcasting route exactly. because this is a lot, a lot more fun <laughs> and glamorous, and uh, I get to show off my hair. My hair looks good today, doesn't it, Jesse? But I think like, it's great. You put um, effort into mine. I, I'm just at full Jufro deployment. No combing. No brushing. <laughs> Not very professional. I hope my publisher is okay with this. <laughs> That's hilarious. By the way, I'm, I'm I'm being ironic and joking. I don't think my hair looks that glamorous. Well, but, um, I, you know what? Yeah. I'm not sure everyone yeah. can see it the way I can. I think it looks great, Scott. So, well, thanks, Jesse. <laughs> um, but you know, human—I uh, uh, almost said humans are scientists too. Uh, sci scientists also, are humans. Also true. <laughs> also true. I was like, there, well, actually, that's both. It works. It works. But uh, like, let, let me just let me just articulate all these points I wanted to articulate today because they're, they're, it's, it's such tricky territory. Um, you know, like to get grants here, here's for instance, um, just, I'm giving you like the inner world of what it's like to be a scientist because it's really not easy. Okay. Yeah. You, you're, you're poor as F, right? You, you know, you, the only thing you have to not be homeless that, that separates you from being on the homeless is uh, getting a grant <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. And to get a grant, you, they actually say in the grant application, tell us why your research is like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like they, right. they are essentially telling you to do that. And, you know, I remember working on grant applications and, and definitely overhyping for the sake of the, of getting the grant, you know, yeah. uh, you know, not that, not lying. Um, I, 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 I try to never lie, but, but just like saying how, ex oh my God, it's so exciting. We found this correlation here and we want to like, you know, keep working on. Um, so there's that mechanism. Um, there is something I, that just occurred to me on reading this is like, um, I think it's important to hold scientists to a high standard but here's my question for you. Like, you know, like, yeah, okay, the book is picking on scientists, but like, why do we hold scientists to a higher standard than um, like Tony Robbins kind of fig figures? Like, why do they get, or, or here's another way of framing it. Why do they get a free pass just because they're not scientists? Oh, I like that. Do you see that. what I'm saying? 
Well, but that's sort of one of the po- points of my book. I don't think I make it explicitly, but one of my yeah. critiques of social psychology and positive psychology, and this is something positive psychologists themselves have worried about, is that it's creeping yeah. a little bit close to like self-help. And yeah. I think in some ways, psychology and self-help have become intertwined. And yeah. the reason I wouldn't tee off, spend a book teeing off on Tony Robbins is because I think it's so obviously wrong. Whereas some of these ideas, they have like Ivy League institutions behind them and helping to hype them up. So it's like in my social world and my parents' social world, these ideas are very popular. So I think I can do more good debunking them. Self-help. I mean, I think Americans spend $10 billion a year on self-help. That'll always be with us. And I think psychologists should want to differentiate themselves from that. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I just I just want to dive deeper in this point because it's been bothering me for a while. Um, yes, as these two domains become closer and closer to each other, because they really are, especially with the field of positive psychology. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's no doubt. Um, why don't we, why aren't we all interested in the truth, regardless of who it comes from? Because the thing is, um, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with with really, really big time, um, best-selling self-help book writers. And I'll say to them, like, where's the evidence for that? Where's the evidence for that? Where's the evidence? And they say, well, I'm not, I'm not a scientist and I don't claim to be a scientist. <laughs> right. That's what they say. And then yeah. it's like free free pass. And then and, and, and not only that, but they do get a free pass by saying that. Yeah. I and, mean, but why shouldn't we, like we, I feel like we, let's bring everyone together in the room um, from every stri- stars and stripes. I think that's kind of a, a, even a broader spirit of your book. I, I just feel like your book Eve, has an even has an even broader message. I'm trying to articulate, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, so if if. Let me think that through. If a, if schools yeah. were bringing in self-help figures to affect their curricula, I would, of course, critique that. What's more likely is they'll bring mm. in social psychologists. But a counterpoint to that is is some of the more cutting-edge um, diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff that both schools and companies are are paying for is basically self-help in that there's no mm. often no evidence for it or no solid evidence. So that that's not that's a case where like it's not only psychologists delivering those programs, but whoever delivers them should be held to account. Anyone who is trying to make money off an idea that makes certain claims, I agree with you completely. I wish we were all more scientific yeah. in evaluating all of these claims. <clears throat> yeah, and and that no one like, like there's like outside of the there's no outside the realm of science. Like you no. can't like we I think this is just becoming an increasing problem in our society right now is that um you know with conspiracy theories with with um with ideas that there's no such thing as objective truth, you know, now yeah. like everything is subjective. I just seeing a larger problem, a larger trend of just like, well, um, look, you know, you have your belief in that science and I have my belief, which isn't science. And we can't, we, you know, let's just all have our different belief systems. And it's like, well, <laughs> I don't know about that when it comes to things like evaluate, evaluating um, whether or not certain interventions will work or whether or not, um, uh, we should apply things large scale. Um, I don't know if there's an, there's an, anything else other than the scientific method to help us, um, to help us uh, evaluate that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think it's all we got. I mean, how else do we know what ideas work and what ideas don't? And that doesn't mean that just because science has proven something, it's right. I mean, that's the whole point right. of my book. But um, I, right. yeah, I, I just think most most Americans and mo- most people... I don't want to sound elitist, but they're not great critical thinkers because critical thinking is difficult and it's, it's easier to accept a story that sounds good and that we want to be true. So, yeah. 
I th- yeah, I think we're we're definitely on the page, the same page of that. But we can go start going in the details of all these as we deconstruct uh, the, my whole field. Um, okay, so <laughs> I want to I want to circle back to grit, but let's cover um, the IIT for a second because you brought up uh, most recently you brought up the diversity uh, trainings. Um, yeah. What does the rigorous research when you looked into the literature show about the effectiveness of these kinds of trainings and the use of the IIT in those trainings? There, the biggest meta analysis suggests that. Um, there's some interventions that can maybe change your IAT score. I should say your IAT score is inherently noisy because the test retest reliability is so low. No one's been able to, to come up with an intervention that actually changes behavior. And behavior is what we care about. Because if the theory wasn't that your IAT score points to behavior or predicts behavior, I don't think anyone would really care about. So the IAT, I believe, uh, in terms of changing individual behavior, I'm not aware of any evidence of interventions that, that actually do that. Yeah, and also uh, that's a really good point. The correlation is very, very small between the IIT score and your actual um, instances of discrimination, racial discrimination in the real world. Um, now, when that's can, even yeah. been measured, that's mostly been measured in lab settings. So even even yeah. there, there's sort of an external validity problem. But yeah, yeah, um, it's interesting because Greenwald still defend, you know, still de- vehemently defends the IIT, I believe. Well, not only that, but Banaji was on a Today Show segment like a month ago that didn't, I, I, I that, you know, I sort of almost rage quit over that. Like there was, hmm. in the year 2021, no one should be doing these segments that doesn't at least acknowledge the statistical critiques. And this exposed the test to potentially millions of more people who, who won't be aware of that. So I, that frustrated me. Yeah. The one thing that always occurred to me as as kind of as cool about the test is that I think it can tap into, um, an understanding of the societal's uh, most prevalent associations or, or, or things that, you know, like, like I do think the media has an effect on our unconscious associations, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It, it, to me, it's much more interesting as an index of uh, cultural, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, consciousness. Yeah, that would be true, except for the fact that there's some evidence that it's measuring other stuff, not just like actual cultural associations. So there's some evidence that if you are the more aware you are that black people are oppressed in society, that gives you a higher SAT score, uh, SAT, IAT <laughs> score. Uh, that's different from saying that you've actually internalized cultural messages. And part of the problem here is I, an individual IAT score appears to be a complicated mix of, of different things. And has to me, to my mind, been yeah. overhyped as like this is actually measuring your implicit bias. Your broader point, though, is totally true. I'm I'm sure implicit bias exists and affects some outcomes. I just don't think we have an accurate way of measuring it. I th- I agree. So I agree with my point again, and I agree with your point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like I say I agree with both points, but one of them was my point. But yeah, I I yes, um, it, this stuff can get tricky uh, real fast. <laughs> so yeah. let's say that you do the IT and you find that people in the Black Lives Matter movement have more racial bias according to the IIT, you know, like, right. like, what, like, what would that even mean? Like, like that, I, I wouldn't want to argue and they certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to say that, like, you know, they, 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 they are, they are more racist unconsciously, even though they're ex- explicitly less racist, right? That, I mean, that, you know, what, so the thing is there are multiple ways to interpret this. And yeah. one, one more parsimonious way is that um, perhaps the more that you, engage it that these ideas are in the forefront of your consciousness all the time you know like you're seeing everything through the lens of race well no duh the associations are going to be quicker to activate 
you know, with some things that you keep seeing over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, if you're constantly fighting in the world of social justice and you keep seeing these things linked together by, um, you know, if you keep seeing, you know, it's in your consciousness. Yeah. You, the, your millisecond reaction time is going to be quicker. One of the seminal early papers critiquing the IIT was was titled, Would Jesse Jackson Fail the Implicit Association Test? Exactly that, what I'm talking about. That's exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I look, I. As I mentioned in the book, like uh, I wrote a long article about this for New York Magazine. Some conservatives interpreted that as me saying implicit bias isn't real or isn't important. I think implicit mm -hmm. bias is absolutely real. I think mm -hmm. how important it is in the overall pie of America's discriminatory outcomes is very much up for debate and that no one's, to my mind, really been able to show it's that important versus other stuff, but it could be. We, we could learn that. Yeah, and there's some really important interactions here with the with uh, neurologically speaking, with the prefrontal cortex, I, I wrote an article about that um, for, for Psychology Today about like I feel like ten years ago. Um, but um, reviewing that research, showing that um, you know there are, there are huge moderator effects that explain whether or not some of these associations do become um, correlated in the real world. Like yeah. there are moderators that can move that correlation higher and lower. You know, because we ignored everything else and we said all else equal, the correlation is weak. Right, but there are some factors that make it more likely than others. If you have a very, um, uh, if you're a very impulsive person or your, you know, your personality is, you have a very uh, poor executive functioning. Um, you, you kind of go like immediately from, uh, from thought to action. <laughs> yeah. You know, that makes then, sense that that you'd yeah. be more susceptible to implicit forces. Yeah. That's boom, interesting. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Um, that's right. Okay, so um, thanks for for bringing that up and talking about the nuances of that. Um, let's move a little bit. Let's move. Let's let's dive into grit. Um, yeah. Now, look, Angela is a dear friend of mine, and and I, and I my office was right next to hers at the Positive Psychology Center at Penn, which you also <laughs> take down, um, and uh, for five years. Um, and um, uh, I love that you said sorry. Uh, I mean, there's obviously no no no. You don't need to. Well, so be no, sorry, but this is but, an it's yeah. a, it's an interesting real world example of how. You're not just criticizing ideas, you're criticizing a person. And perhaps yeah. this book was easier to write because I wasn't writing about my friends, you know? That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah. So, but that tells you something about why ideas persist sometimes. So, yeah. They do. Um, but I also bring this up because I just feel like I can speak to it from like a first person perspective of yeah. like, like, you know, like, um, like my experience of the, of the situation because I would have so many you know, Angela would come after a long day of work. She, my, my office was right next door to hers. Uh, I had Imagination Institute right next to the Grit Lab. <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah. So she would come right next door and she'd be like, hey, do you want to walk home, you know, today? And I can't tell you how many amazing conversations we had, you know, walking home to her house. And then I would have dinner sometimes at her place. She would cook dinner and I would have dinner with her and the family. And, um, and she's like ravenously curious and she's yeah. so bright. She's so bright. She's so quick. She's so quick. And I remember all of our conversation. I remember our conversations were so stimulating and, and she, I mean, we would, we would really get into it. Um, you know, we wouldn't always agree. I think sometimes maybe I did think IQ played a larger role, even though at the end of the day, we both have criticisms against IQ, but she would just, you know, we, I would tell her about a certain paper and she'd be like, Oh, tell me more about the paper. She's ravenously curious. I think, I really do think she wants to, um, uh, I think she's a good scientist. Yeah. A, um, B, I think that she really does want to um, know um, the, you know, all these various correlations. But she really does, she really does believe in grit, and and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a problem. Maybe maybe it is. You know, maybe um, to the extent to which one should one believe in their pet construct 
to such a degree that yeah. um uh and i would even make this case uh, argument again with intelligence this this happens again human scientists are human and uh, um and I don't know if any any scientist is exempt from that. I look at intelligence researchers all the time, by the way. I kind of wish you took them to task a little bit, Jesse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they believe in their construct, like, I mean, talk about, and you know, believing in a construct. And maybe, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, it was important for Angela to kind of um, try to shake up the field a little bit and say, look, you know, it's not all about intelligence, you know, yeah. and, um, hard work does play a role in it. Well, I mean, so it's interesting because personality psychology had been studying conscientiousness for decades. And hmm. often what Angela found with grit was similar to what they'd found with conscientiousness in terms of these correlations. So I, I think by the time I was done writing that chapter, I sort of, I'm not sure American society that this was a new, like, obviously it was new enough for the, for everyone to latch onto it and be excited by it. But because we're so self-helpy and we so value as Americans, the value of grit and hard work. Um, I, I think what, what you're saying, if you say it's true among uh, sort of achievement researchers, I'm positive it's true. I'm just not sure that it was ever the case that like Americans undervalued uh, the importance of grit. I, I think we've always been into that. Mm. Maybe the, the the split between what scientists focused on versus what the general public focused on, and the second that the the two aligned more, that yeah. what and that that it was like wildfire. Um, I, I will say, like, it's noteworthy to me that in both her book and her TED talk, she straightforwardly is like, "We don't know how to improve grit," which which already gives her points in terms of scientific integrity. A lot of other researchers lack, and that's always stuck out to me. Uh, about her, even if I disagree with her on on some stuff. Agreed. I have found her to be quite intellectually honest, and um, and and it, this is more of the of the spirit of the spirit I get from her after knowing her personally. I mean, she'll be like, uh, "Let's try something else to see if it um uh if we can learn." Like we, do, she'll say, "Yeah, we don't know yet, but let's let's try lots of things." And yeah. and she'll have lab meetings where people will discuss ideas. I mean, she had this idea. She's like, "How can we objectively study grit?" Like, let's come up with ideas. And she had this idea. She tried this. Um, her and her graduate student tried a bunch of studies where they looked to see if you could predict uh someone's grit score from just objectively looking at a a college applicant's prior history of uh quitting clubs. You know, like 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 you can actually look at their past history and see and and count up and tally how many times they switched from one thing to another, and yeah. it's quite 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 a reasonable well, way of, so of getting it. Well, so the problem yeah. with that study is is this oh, is you know about it. I oh, do. You know this it. is a oh. critique that I had to relegate to a footnote. Uh, she and her colleague or colleagues took a pre-existing College Board um, uh, sir uh, instrument that is not grit. And they just sort of said that that's grit. So they correlated that that resume task. They correlated with this other instrument that, if you look at it, is clearly measuring something other than grit. And they just said, let's consider this grit. So that's an example of like the slight slipperiness I don't I don't always like. And um, I, yeah. if we were having this conversation offline at a bar, I would I would give you a chance to like look into it and make sure you agree with my critique. But that's just an example of like in some cases, I think some of the research is a little bit um, overhyped. Yeah, and 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 you're probably quite right that it is overhyped. Certainly overhyped by educators right now. I mean, yeah. who, who are all treating it like it's the panacea again. Like everyone's looking for a panacea, you know. Yeah. Um. And 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 then within the science field, I think 
um, it probably is in terms of measurement, and 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 Angela agrees with this because I've I've been trying to come up with a grit 2.0 scale with her. We we actually co we have a draft of a grit 2.0 scale we, we were working on. Oh, that'd be fascinating um, to learn more about at some point. Yeah, and I have I have like three data sets of of analysis on it. Um, basically, she ha- she fully admits um, that. Um, those items could be improved to more tap into what she really was trying to get it. Because as, as, the problem is that there's a difference between concept and measurement. The way I, I think that the the spirit of what she was bringing to the table was re, was really uh, new saying, yeah. oh, I think there's something that conscientiousness misses out. And that's kind of the long term um, perseverance um, and commitment aspect. Um, and. I don't think that she fully captured that in her grit scale. And, 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 and I think that's been such a source of this, all of all these problems, you know, because yeah. all scientists have to do to, to try to validate her, her theory and everything is using her grit scale. So then they find it's pretty much conscientiousness, particularly the industriousness aspect of, if you want to really nerd, nerd out, you, you can zoom in and say, it's pretty much, you know, perseverance aspect is pretty much the um, industrious aspect of of the big five uh, conscientiousness yeah. facet. But and, well, and I and I know yeah. her critics, oh. even yeah. her fiercest critics, said there is this one little nugget of potentially useful stuff. So like, no one's discounted the scale. Exactly. But, um, exactly. Uh, yeah, that, I, I'll be interested to see what grit two looks like. That's really interesting. Yeah, and 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 maybe let's leave it at that because in the spirit of. Um, not tearing down people, but in the spirit of perfecting the science uh, or getting the science better, because yeah. I, I think that that should be what it's about. Really. I don't like some of this infighting. I, I don't like it. Quite frankly, I don't, I don't like the scientists who get personal about it. And then, uh, you know, they want to like, they're like, they become in their mission to take down, you know, a fellow scientist. Let, let's just all improve the science. Because I think that in that, in the spirit of doing the science better, I think Angela would agree. And I, I certainly um, have, have discussed this with her. And I think that, you know, there, there's these couple, these couple items that 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 even Marcus Creed, who who wrote that meta analysis, said. Well, there's something here with these kinds of items that are more long term based perseverance that is doing most of the prediction. And my goal would, uh, my thinking and and my spirit about this is like let's let's perfect a scale or let's get a, a better reliable scale that like zooms in on that. You know, yeah. double click, double double clicks on that and. Uh, and shows what's really unique about the grid concept because I do think there's something there. It's just I, th- I see it as a measurement issue, quite frankly. Well, I mean, it could be the same general trajectory as as mindset interventions, where you start with a lot of hype and then there's some debunking, and you end up yeah. with like something that is useful to some researchers in some contexts. Awesome. Well, isn't this great that we're getting so deep into this? <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, um, so, can you explain what it means to be living in quote the age of fracture? Yeah, uh, Age of Fracture, I took from a, <laughs> with credit, I didn't steal it from him, from a Princeton historian named uh, Daniel P. Rogers. Uh, he, his idea is that in mid-century America, uh, Americans and sort of public intellectuals understood that we're all parts of these big structures. We're all, you know, uh, a lot of people are members of civic institutions or churches, uh, religion, ideology. These all, you know, there's structure to life. And that doesn't mean that anyone would want to go back to the 1950s, especially if you're like the wrong gender or skin color. But his overall argument is we've gotten more and more fractured and American life is seen as more and more atomistic. And mm-hmm. the way I connected to this to my book is if we're all just individuals floating around in highly competitive markets, of course, we're going to both want to optimize ourselves with the latest and greatest tweak, 
And of course, we're going to be susceptible to explanations of the world that rely on things like priming and biases at the expense of like, how wealthy are you? What's your local social network like? So yeah, I, I, I think um, Age of Fracture is a really important book and I, I hope a lot of people read it. After they read cool. mine, of course. Mine's of course, of course, of course. Well, thanks for, um, for introducing me to that concept because uh, I, I was not aware of that. So I actually do want to read, go in and read that, that literature. Yeah. Um, I I would like to double click uh, or not double click. I'd like to return to something I was I was talking about earlier. I said is, is there's nothing else other than science really if we want to rigorously test large scale interventions. But I suppose you know there's this other voice in my head that says at the end of the day, like if a self help thing, even if it's not scientific validated, if it helps you, yeah. like isn't that all that matters? So there's this other voice in my head, you know, because I've that that that's a refrain I get a lot from not from non scientists who write self help books. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll say to them, but, you know, like, there's no science in this. And they're like, but, you know, it, my grandma says it helps her. And that's all, you know, like, at the end of the day, if it helps people, I get, she, people will say to me, like, you know, but I get hundreds and hundreds of letters a day saying how much my book changed their life. Right. Now, what would you say in response? I know what I think I know what I would say, I would say but I want to hear what, what you would say in response to that. Um. Let's take power posing as a concrete example. There's probably some people for whom standing up straight before a meeting, hands on their hips like Wonder Woman for 30 seconds helps. There's nothing wrong with that. But if the creator of power posing gives overstated or false explanations why it might help people, that's a problem. If it doesn't help people on average, we shouldn't say it does. Uh, there's also just the issue of like averages are averages. Like a, a power posing could have a net negative average on people i'm not saying it does but even if it did there could still be a subset of people for whom it benefits and that effect could be washed out by everyone it hurts so mm. um you know if you read a self-help book and you find it inspiring i i, I would just be real one of the first things we learned in ap psychology is that people are not good at evaluating themselves and understanding what helps and hurts them and that's one of the reasons we have clinical psychology so i think you know, maybe maybe the power posing helps you because you're taking deep breaths during it or because you're just giving yourself 30 seconds to collect yourself before the meeting or the negotiations. Um, there oftentimes might be other explanations for why these interventions feel like they're working than what lay people think. And, and I think there's a role for critical scientific types to try to explain that. Mm. And also the um, the placebo effect is, is yeah. really can be really big. Um, my, my colleague at Stanford, um, Ali Crum, um, doing really good work on that. And I was actually surprised you didn't bring in Ali Crum's research. Cause I think that'd be a cool, uh, uh, way to incorporate some of your ideas as well, because, um, she's found that, um, you know, the mindsets you have over, uh, like that when you enter a certain, one of these conditions can dramatically improve the extent to which you actually, um, get benefit from them, especially in a placebo situation. Like if you really expect expect this placebo thing to change your life um you know you'll be much more likely for your life to be changed yeah and she's done some interesting stuff i think with like food and calories and mindsets milkshakes too, milkshakes, milkshakes. Mind, yeah, yeah i think she has a title of one of her papers mind over milkshakes it's <laughs> <laughs> a great title yeah she's great i wish she was my uh, i went to grad school with her so it's it's so like it's cool to see like your 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 grad school buddies like become famous and awesome you know yeah um, yeah. So should we tackle self-esteem now since we're taking it all down? We're not taking it. We're, burn, we're burning it all down. Just destroying everybody. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could start with like the, the kernel of truth, the self-esteem that I, okay. I mentioned in the chapter. Um, 
if you think you're completely worthless, if you have very low self-esteem and you interpret every event negatively and you have a bad date and you assume that that's a signal you'll be unloved forever, then, you know, some cognitive behavioral therapy would likely help you. And there's some solid evidence for that. And and that's a facet of self-esteem, right? It's your mindset about yourself. My chapter is about this this craze that took over the 1980s and the 1990s, mostly thanks to one California legislator named John Vasconcelos. Uh, mm. Pretty soon, like the whole country and a number of other countries thought that self-esteem could sort of fix everything, that self-esteem lay at the root of problems ranging from academic underachievement to literal murder. And it, you know, it became a fad and a craze. And we now know... Uh, Baumeister actually uh, around the turn of the century did like a big study where he looked at all the past literature with some colleagues and they found like there's very little there suggesting a strong causal role for self-esteem. But as always, baby and bathwater, we need to keep two thoughts in our head at the same time. The craze was over the top. People don't kill one another because of low self-esteem usually. In fact, criminals have high self-esteem is an interesting finding. Uh, But also, if you have incredibly low self-esteem, CBT can help. Yeah, and and by the way, the researchers have found there's no such thing as low self-esteem. It's really uncertain self-esteem. They, they you actually find when you do um, look at self like distributions of self-esteem scores, very few people say they have no no self-worth. It's yeah. usually around the midpoint or at the high point. Well, that was one one interesting bout Baumeister pointed out is that uh, all this talk of of an epidemic of low American self-esteem. He was like, where is it? Americans are very, very high on themselves. We're very like Lake Wobegon-ish. Yeah, it's, it is also, it's important to distinguish between self-esteem and narcissism. I think yeah. some people, sometimes people, uh, when they say, when they make fun of self, of people uh, they, and they use self-esteem, they're really, they're really referring to a, a different phenomenon of narcissism. So I, I, there's a, there's a lot of important nuances here, you know, like I think that, um, it's it's good to have a basic sense of self-worth and a sense of self-competency. But as I argue in in, in Transcend, because I have a whole chapter on self-esteem, and Transcend is as is I think it's a healthy self-esteem is a, is a basic human need, but it's one it's one that shouldn't be pursued for the sake of being pursued. It's one that should emerge um uh, or, organically from real yeah. earned accomplishments and and being a, a valued social partner. Well, I'm not a big Ayn Rand fan, but John Vasconcelos um took his enthusiasm for self-esteem from a disciple and lover of Ayn Rand named, I think, Nathaniel Brandon. And and his whole point, which I think yes. Vasconcelos sort of missed, is like there's the fake self-esteem of looking in the mirror and trying to convince yourself you're great versus the organic self-esteem of like, oh, I've accomplished some stuff. I have a beautiful family. Things are going well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um Good, good. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you did this. I'm glad you wrote this book, Justin. I <laughs> Thank really you. am. I, I, uh, I am too. I um, yeah. I'm glad you wrote it. I think it, it needed to be written, and we need to be having these conversations, even if people don't, you know, agree a thousand percent with every single sentence you say. You know, even some scientists might have some quibbles, especially the ones that you <laughs> wrote I'm about. Sure, I think I'm they sure might they have will, some quibbles. And I look forward to reading them. And I know you. I know you. I know you are looking for. I I, I know that you're you're you want to you you're open. You know, yeah. you want to have that discussion. Um, I, I do want to give a lot of credit yeah. to my editor because he was the one often pushing back and saying like, well, mm. this idea isn't Alex Starr is my editor. Uh, this idea isn't bunk. You, we shouldn't assume everything here is bunk. Obviously, there's right. some element of, of your posture that matters or your self-esteem that matters. So he was that the he's himself a, a skeptical guy. He has to be as a book editor, but he was whispering in my ear like, let's not go too far in the other direction. And I think the book benefited a great deal as a result. So I didn't want to take credit for that. Yeah. Um- 
I saw that. Like, I saw that. I saw those sentences where you'd go through a whole long two pages and there'd be the paragraph. But maybe <laughs> we shouldn't. Maybe that's, that was his, his, his influence yeah, exactly. of inserting. But I, I, I noticed that it followed that pattern. You know what I mean? Like, you'd go a yeah. couple and then, and then you'd have, but look, you know, maybe there's something here, you know, if we, if we, you know, because there's this other study that did find maybe something promising. So you did, you know, throw a bone. <laughs> Every to, now yeah. No, I, that was, that was nice. That was very nice of you. Um, Thank you. Um, I think like just like the last topic I just want to discuss with you, which is um, a very heavy topic, uh, is the fact that the human brain really has an easy time latching onto monocausal accounts. Yeah. And um, I mean, you've written about this. You have this blocked and reported podcast where you you're not afraid of saying uh, politically incorrect things, um, you know, for the sake of if you think they're true, you know. Yeah. Um, do you see a problem right now with um, with with people latching on to kind of racism as the single cause of um, so so many uh, disparities as opposed to looking at uh, multi-causal accounts? I think yes and no. I think um, I, I'm, I'm recording this from my parents, nice suburb of Boston. And mm-hmm. I think anyone who knows the history of Boston or most major American cities understands that the suburbs were were built by racism and to support racism and only certain people had access to them. And, you know, if you read, uh, Tom Segrew on what happened in Detroit in the fifties where there were black families with money and they wanted the same thing white families wanted. They wanted more space, more living room. They tried to sort of move into the Detroit suburbs. They were met with armed mobs of white homeowners. This stuff happened in the lifespan of people who are still alive today. And, and often hasn't been talked about. So part of the pendulum swing has been, let's talk about that. But people don't always do a great job like understanding how complicated structural racism can be. And like you're saying, some we've gotten to a point where I do think sometimes whenever anything happens, it's assumed to be racism as the root cause, just because that is the current conversation. The tragic recent example we saw was this mass shooting where for structural reasons, the, the I don't know if these women were all sex workers or just masseuses, but the women targeted were mostly Asian, not all Asian. I think two white women died, but a lot of the coverage suggested that he was motivated by racism when it, it seems like he was more motivated by these horrible far-right ideas about sexuality and his shame and this sense that these women had tempted him somehow, which is uh, it's ludicrous to blame your own issues on women, first of all, and of course, ludicrous to then attack them. Um, my argument for a long time has been if we reduce an event like that to one cause, whether it's racism or whatever else, we're not going to be able to stop the next attack because we're, we're, we're you know fighting with one hand tied behind our back. And I think in liberal spaces, you would probably agree this is seen as a very important conversation, but the good faith attempts to understand events can sometimes bleed into opportunistic attempts to signal that you're on the right side of an issue. So, so if you go online and you say anti, this anti-Asian racism has to stop, it's not just an empirical claim about what happened, but you're signaling, like, I understand this is a serious issue. And of course, anti-Asian racism is a serious issue, but again, that's different from whether we can reduce this particular attack to it. So, uh, yeah, that's my, my basic stance on it. Yeah. That was, that was really uh, nuanced and, um, that was a that was a very Jesse response. So, uh, <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate. I'll take that, that as a compliment. Uh, yeah, yeah, because and you should take it as a compliment. But um, yeah, I I think that um, 
it's it's spot on because like I I'm deeply interested in closing achievement gaps um, with various ra- racial ethnic groups, you know, um, and uh, they're actually called excellence gaps. You you actually see um, at the top two percent of standardized test scores. I mean, it's pro- pro- huge discrepancies. Yeah, when you get to the tails, but it's a it's a multi determined issue. Um, yes. you, you know, it just it just makes no sense to say the the answer is just racism. You know, there's well, there's, and, and poor, you, there's poor schooling, there's poverty, yeah. there's yeah. Sorry. Well, and al- and also you don't need again you don't need to like. I think one of the conservative beliefs that I'm softer on now than I was ten years ago is that like family structure actually matters a lot. If you have two mm. parents to look after a kid, that matters a lot. That doesn't mean we should morally judge people who have kids early on. It means it's it's harder to raise a kid. Everyone knows this. Everyone who's college educated tries to have have kids with a partner who's there. But something like that, like like uh, having a kid earlier than you should, that is also connected to structural racism uh, because mm-hmm. of you know access to education or contraceptives. You can still make that argument if you want, but like you're saying, to reduce every part of this achievement gap to like you know people have tried to claim the SAT is particularly racist, which I think you're sort of letting a lot of institutions off the hook because like we want schools to be better. We want people to have better and safer families. Um, I've observed the same thing. I I think it's um, not to derail us. I got a really interesting email from a medical resident and he said that socioeconomic determinants of health, you know, is this really important new idea in medicine. Like whether you're healthy or not healthy has to do with a lot of things like your level of social support, uh, your education level, if you're a diabetic, do you have access to testing strips? Do you know what to eat and what not to eat? He said he arrived in medical school excited about this new area that could improve lives. But the shift recently has been the only socioeconomic determinant of health they talk about is racism. Everything is racism. And that that doesn't help. We need to talk about racism, racism but we need to talk about other stuff, too. Yeah. And and that, that that's um, can generalize to the other conversations we had today. Like I, I spent my whole career trying to understand what are the determinants of greatness? You know, what are the yeah. determinants of high achievement? And you just, you know, you could say grit matters, but you can say talent matters. But it's it's a lot more interesting when you start looking at the multi-causal interactions. Yeah. You know, people who are more talented are going to be more motivated to put in the grit. Yeah, you they know? get feedback, like, yeah. There, there are these level of nuances that when you when you double click, you're like, oh, it's the interactions that are interesting, you know, yeah. um, the multi the multicultural interactions. Anyway, Jesse, thank you so much, brother, for being on my podcast today. I, I thought I think you you wrote a really good, um, important book, and I hope you, everyone Scott. reads it. And I hope that we can do better psychology as a result. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me here. And I hope we can uh, get together in person sometime soon. Wouldn't that be nice? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in on the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.